I can't imagine what it would have been like to be, you know, a blind lawyer 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, for, for me, really, I, I'm blessed it really has not been too, too difficult. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from a dreary and dismal and rain-soaked Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and warm, beautiful, blue-skied Southern California. Um, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, we'd like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law and Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Bob, I know you write a couple of blogs. And I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and you can find me on Twitter at Bob Ambrogi. And uh, Craig, I think we need to trade places at some point. Uh, I'm tired of being the one in the, in the dreary place all the time. And, and you this is your karma. Sunshine. This is your karma, Bob, for working <laughs> down in the British Virgin Islands. Don't give me that. All right. Well, I guess that's right. Um, today we're going to have a special guest. Uh, Isaac Lidsky is an attorney. Uh, he was the first blind law clerk to serve in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, served under Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, recently, our good friend and a, a regular guest on our program, Tony Morrow, covers the Supreme Court for uh, the National Law Journal and uh, the blog of Legal Times. Uh, had an article about him uh, called From Supreme Court Clerk to Appellate Advocate. Uh, and, uh, and Tony had written about him before when he, when he first went to the Supreme Court as well. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will chat with attorney Isaac Litsky about his legal career, his Supreme Court clerkship, being visually impaired and a lawyer, and take a look at his nonprofit organization, which is raising awareness and helping those with blinding diseases. Plus, I, I think, Bob, we're going to get a bit of a surprise today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. And uh, so, uh, Isaac... Jay Lidsky uh, is presently uh, at the firm Aiken Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, where he focuses his practice in appellate litigation. Uh, Isaac has a retinal degenerative eye disease that he became aware of uh, in his teens uh, and is now blind. Uh, in 2005, Isaac founded Hope for Vision, a nonprofit organization that funds the development of treatments and cures for blinding diseases. To find out more about Hope for Vision, you can go to hopeforvision.org. But right now, we'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Isaac Litsky. Thanks a lot. It's great to uh, be with you. Well, Isaac, before we get started, we understand you've got some very important news that perhaps you'd like to announce. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my wife and I had uh, triplets, our, our triplets, Lily, Phineas, and Thaddeus, a little while ago, and they were uh, born a little early and a little small, as triplets uh, tend to do. Um, so they spent some time in the hospital getting bigger and stronger, and, and two of them, Lily and Phineas, uh, came home Wednesday afternoon. So Dorothy and I are uh, are 
getting used to having a couple of babies in the house, and, and, and the third, Thaddeus, will uh, hopefully be home in a couple of weeks. Well, that's congratulations. congratulations. Thanks. So tell us, how did you become interested in the law? How did I become interested in law? So my father is an attorney, and I grew up uh, going to work with him uh, often. He was a solo pr- practitioner after uh, law school. He sort of opened an office, hung out a shingle, um, started you know trying to find clients, and uh, he uh, was very successful. Uh, is a is a phenomenal lawyer, and, and over the years built a practice in South Florida. Uh, and when I was a kid, I would, I guess, maybe sort of one out of three days, um, go to, go to the office with my dad, go to court, hear him, you know, argue. And, uh, he would tell me, he would sort of tell me at length about the case and what was going on and what the issues were and, um, sort of the, the legal niceties and also the sort of practical realities of the dispute. So I learned a tremendous amount from him and, uh, and knew that I wanted to learn to sort of think like, like he does. One of the interesting things about your background is that you were actually a, a child actor and uh, had a role uh, in a TV series. Uh, a lot of people uh, who start down that path might uh, might quickly forget about law school or, or other professional careers. So, uh, tell us about that experience. And, and <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I appreciate. It. I did not forget about law school. I did always want to go <laughs> back to college and law, but I I did really enjoy a uh, sort of quasi-career, I guess, in acting when I was a kid. I grew up in South Florida, as I mentioned, and I, I did um, a bunch of commercials down there. They film a lot of uh, TV commercials in, in Miami. In uh, the, the New York ad agencies uh, tend to find all sorts of compelling reasons why in the dead of winter they must film <laughs> their commercials in Miami, Florida. Um, so uh, as a kid growing up in Miami, I did a lot of those commercials and got some lucky breaks here and there. And um, Certainly the most visible... Uh, project I worked on was a sitcom called Saved by the Bell, the new class. And for that, I moved out to Los Angeles for, I guess, my sophomore and junior years of high school. Uh, and then when that was all done and wrapped up, I, uh, I guess, sort of realized it was time for me to go on and pursue my college and, and, and law school career and sort of move on a bit. So I actually applied to college as a, as a junior in high school and skipped my senior year and went from L.A. to, uh, to college. And where in where in that process did you begin to realize that that, that the vision that you had uh, vision issues? So I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa uh, when I was thirteen. I guess shortly before I moved out to Los Angeles to do a sitcom. I was diagnosed because uh, two of my three older sisters have the same condition, and one of those two was uh, having some vision difficulties, which landed uh, uh, the four of us in the ophthalmologist's office. Uh, and we you know, sort of soon discovered that two of my sisters, as I said, and I had this, this condition. So I had not yet uh, realized, I guess, that I saw any different uh, than, than my peers. Uh, although in retrospect, I probably was already maybe beginning to experience some minor symptoms, but certainly I didn't, didn't know that I had a, had a blinding disease. But so then from, I guess, about age 13 to about age 25-ish, I lost, you know, substantially all of my vision. I have a bit of vision left today. I can sort of tell when the lights are on most of the time. Uh, and on a good day, I'll, you know, be able to see if there's sort of high contrast between, you know, a wall and a floor um, or something like that. That's sort of where I'm at today. So how was it going to law school? I mean, there, as as all lawyers know, there's a heck of a lot of reading involved. 
Yeah. So um, I should say my law school was phenomenally accommodating. So they really helped me out. I actually began, uh, I actually was trained to use a cane uh, and learn how to use a cane and started doing that during law school. Uh, and they helped me arrange all that. You went to Harvard Law School, right? Yes, this was Harvard Law School, exactly. Yeah. So I'm familiar with the dreary, dreary Massachusetts weather. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they also helped me, you know, get notes from, from classmates and, uh, you know, when I needed them and a little extra time on an exam here or there. Um, and it was, it was in law school that, um, really with the help of my wife, then, you know, then my uh, girlfriend, I guess, uh, I started using some of the adaptive technologies that I use today. In particular, there's a screen reading software called uh, JAWS. It stands for Java Access with Speech. Um, and it basically, um, you know, enables you to you know, do anything you want to do with a computer uh, and have the, the, the program will narrate to you sort of what's going on. It'll, it'll read to you documents. It'll tell you, you know, what your different options are on a menu. And, um, you know, basically anything that I used to be able to do on a computer, I, I now can do, uh, you know, with the aid of this fantastic software. During law school, did you uh, how did did you have any difficulty reading? Did you need Braille? How did you get through uh, law school with all the reading that was involved? Yeah, so so with this software, um, if I was able to get reading in a digital format, so if a publisher would provide a digital version of the book, uh, or if you know certain cases or uh, articles were scanned in for me, once I had that on my computer, I could use this software to listen to documents which was very helpful. In law school, I also still had a great deal of useful vision. So I did do a lot of reading, uh, you know, visually while in law school, including using a, um, they have these gadgets where, you know, you basically lay a book in the thing and it magnifies, it projects it up on a screen and it magnifies the text for you. And uh, that was helpful too. But really during, during law school, I was kind of in a, a transitional phase trying to sort of sort out what uh, what technologies, what tools I would I would employ, kind of moving forward as my vision became more of a disability and less of a nuisance. So it was it was actually a pretty you know major time in my life all around, I guess. So how how did you uh, as as you were nearing the end of law school and thinking about what did you what did what you wanted to do next? Uh, did did the vision play into that? I mean, were you were you thinking about, you know, what would be right or what would fit with this? Or, or did you just disregard it and, and go on in terms of what you wanted to pursue? Um, I think for the most part, I, you know, for the most part, I'd like to think I disregarded it. I, you know, I, I think it is a happy coincidence that the type of law that I enjoy and practice, which is appellate litigation, uh, I think is, you know, a, a type of, of law practice that, uh, you know, is, is better suited to, to someone with a visual disability in the sense that, you know, I, it's, uh, I generally have, you know, know a month ahead of time when a brief is going to be due and I can do all my research on the computer and I'm not dealing with, you know, a ton of exhibits generally or a lot of, uh, you know, meetings or witnesses and that kind of stuff. So I think to the extent that I gravitated towards sort of more of an appellate practice, my vision, you know, may have had something to do with it, but it also you know, happens to be what I what I love. I after law school, I clerked for a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Tom Ambro, and that was just an incredible experience, uh, and uh, you know, sort of solidified my thinking that that appellate advocacy was really kind of what I was interested in. And then after that, I was really fortunate uh, to land a honors program position in the uh, Justice Department. I worked 
on the appellate staff of the civil division of the Justice Department, being, uh, you know, being a year out of law school, I was given the responsibility for briefing and arguing cases in the federal circuit courts of appeal on behalf of the government and its agencies, which uh, may be negligent, but it is the way it's done <laughs> in the Justice Department. Uh, the new guys, you know, get a ton of responsibility. So that was just an, also uh, an amazing experience, and, and it enabled me to, in a, a very short period of time, uh, have a lot of, you know, phenomenal, uh, you know, practice experiences. I guess, you know, to answer the question actually posed, I guess, you know, appellate advocacy kind of seemed to be the right way to go. Yeah. Well, you also got a clerkship with um, on the Supreme Court. So can you tell us about that? Sure. So that had long been a dream of mine. I actually applied four years in a row for that gig. Uh, and, and, you know, for all sorts of reasons, it was something I was, they're interested in doing. And while I was at the Justice Department, uh, Justice O'Connor had me in for an interview and, and, and ultimately gave me the job uh, working in her chambers. She was by then retired. Um, as a retired justice, she continues to serve a judicial role. So she, she will sit on circuit courts of appeal three or four times a year and hear cases uh, with uh, you know, panels of, of judges on those courts uh, as though she were, you know, an active judge on that court and she you know, writes decisions and, you know, all that stuff. Um, she also does a lot of speeches and, and, and papers and whatnot that I had the good fortune of uh, being able to help her with. Uh, and lastly, she follows the uh, sort of tradition, historically, retired justices will loan their single clerk to the chambers of an active justice for the term as kind of a, a fifth fifth clerk for the term, and Justice O'Connor uh, sort of loaned me out to Justice Ginsburg, who was beyond generous and welcoming and, and really, uh, uh, you know, made me feel as though I were part of her chambers for the term. I got to do, you know, a you know, full fifth of her, her, work, uh, her workload, so that was amazing. So it was kind of a two-for-one experience. At the time, I could boast that I clerked for every female justice in the history of the Supreme Court. <laughs> I, I'm glad to say that that is far from true at this point. Isaac, you know, I, I hear you say that uh, to some extent the, the sort of document-intensive work is is suitable to, to you in that there are uh, adaptive technologies available, and yet and yet, it also se- almost seems counterintuitive. I mean, given the, the, the quantity of documents you must have to deal with as a clerk at the Supreme Court, uh, what what accommodations did the court make, if any, uh, to having you clerk there? So they were phenomenally helpful, um, and they sort of took on the monumental task of making sure that all the documents, all the information I needed to access was available in a digital form, uh, you know, that I could access from my computer with my software. That is a huge task, uh, can be a huge task, uh, and... You know, I, I don't mean to uh, suggest otherwise. On my end, because they did, they did all that for me and they sort of enabled me to work with uh, documents, like I said, digitally in a format that I could listen to them. It's really, uh, it's really not that bad. It, it actually, I I am certain that I work much more efficiently now than I did before I lost my vision. Uh, and and you know, I mean, literally, I read faster now listening to documents than I could when I was reading them with, with my eyes. And I also am just sort of somewhat forced to 
develop techniques for organizing, you know, materials and organizing my documents and sort of how I go about, you know, writing a brief. And uh, those sort of techniques born of necessity also have all sorts of advantages in terms of efficiency. And like I said, I think I uh, actually operate a lot more efficiently now than I used to. So can you kind of give us a, a day in the life, uh, you know, how you start your day, how you go through your day? And, and you know, for lawyers, it's you know, we rely so much on our eyes, it's kind of hard to comprehend uh, going through a day uh, practicing law, not really being able to, to see what you're working on. I mean, it sounds phenomenal to be able to listen to what you're working on. So day in the life, at about uh, 2.33 in the morning, I will try <laughs> to give Phineas a bottle. Uh, that no, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> been a day in the life. The, the, the day in the life before triplets and after triplets. Yeah, perhaps. yeah, yeah. No, um, you know, it it really is. I think probably not unlike uh, you know how other folks go about their day. I I you know I use Microsoft Outlook to you know read emails and stay in touch with uh, you know all my colleagues. Uh, I use Microsoft Word to read and edit documents. I use, you know, Internet Explorer to, to you know, access uh, you know, Internet pages and whatnot, including Westlaw or LexisNexis and do my research. And, you know, the one big difference is it's all done, you know, with audio. So I have, uh, you know, speakers on my desk and no monitor and just, you know, keyboard and speakers. And that's how I interact with the computer. Um, it really is a blessing to have this type of software and the other technologies that you know complement the software. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be you know a blind lawyer twenty thirty years ago uh, but uh you know for for me it really i am blessed it really has not been too too difficult and you know you mentioned day in the life one of the sort of nice things in all this is as I was telling uh Tony. I can, you know, sort of go the whole day sitting at my desk and really have no need to to get up, right? I mean, I don't deal with with files or paper. I run a paperless office. Uh, everything that I get, you know, I have to get eventually electronically. Um, so, you know, I just sit at my sit at my desk and do my work. And you're at Aiken Gump, and, and I know you spent some time in London for uh-huh. Aiken Gump, and and then came back uh, to the states. Uh, how how has how have your colleagues? been uh to work with and uh you know how how do they uh uh work with you on this i mean are, are, have there been any uh any issues positive or minus uh, in terms of the way your colleagues work with you at Aiken Gump? so definitely a lot of positives i mean i've generally found my colleagues to be very understanding and very willing to you know figure out solutions you know there's there are solutions to any problem i really you know going blind has, has made me a firm believer in that you know, it's taken a bit of effort here and there. I may have to um, ask a colleague if they can send a document in a different format or if I get a document. Let's say, for example, I have someone faxes me a, a document with handwritten comments. Uh, that might require asking a paralegal or uh, another associate to help me, uh, you know, go through the document, um, you know, things to that effect. Using like comment bubbles and track changes and that kind of stuff can get a little tricky with the screen reading software. So I might, uh, you know, I might have to ask colleagues to do things a little differently. But you know, generally, 
you know, they're, they're willing to learn, you know, educate themselves as to sort of how it is that I go about my work and, and willing to sort of be helpful, which just, you know, means the world to me. It, it enables me to, to be part of the so, team. So, so when the great. IT people come to work on your computer, because surely it, it needs help from time to time, do they do yeah. it without a monitor? Uh, no, they, so they, I like to tease them. It's a, it's a moment that I often, that I enjoy when the IT person comes <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, either a monitor needs to get plugged in or, uh, when I use a laptop, I usually just use a laptop with an external keyboard and just keep the laptop closed. So, you know, I'll sort of make some smart comment about, oh, I presume you need to open the laptop and turn on the monitor and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no, it is kind of funny. I, I like to tease people. Oh, so you need, you need your eyes to use the computer, huh? Well, Isaac, it's, uh, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll be talking more with Isaac Lidsky about hope, provision, and next steps. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to talk to us about the benefits of cloud computing. Now, what do you think the single biggest benefit to cloud computing is? In talking to our customers recently uh, about that very question, I was surprised with what came back with as, as a really resounding response, and that was that it's the convenience and the freedom that cloud computing affords them the ability to get their work done from anywhere whether it's at their office at the courthouse at home or even if they're on vacation they're able to get their work done where and when they need to get it done Uh, the mobile aspect of things is also increasingly important with cloud-based software you can access your data and software from your iphone or your ipad uh, your blackberry uh, and other mobile devices so for the uh, lawyers that are on the move which is an increasing Uh, proportion of lawyers, that's a a really key benefit as well. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if anyone wants additional information on Clio, they can feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi and my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are talking with attorney Isaac J. Lidsky from the uh, firm of Aiken Gump. Uh, Isaac was the first 
blind law clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, now practices appellate law. He was recently featured in an article in the National Law Journal. And uh, Isaac, I, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about the nonprofit organization you founded. I, I have to say, I... I, I, uh, I'm actually blind in one eye and I had some retinal problems myself. And so I, I have, uh, a little bit of, uh, uh, sympathy for, uh, for, uh, the cause, I guess, uh, or, or empathy for it. Um, and, uh, so I'd, I'd love it if you could tell us more about, uh, what you've done, uh, in founding this charity. Sure. So Hope for Vision is a phenomenal organization I'm very proud of. We, uh, as you said, fund the development of treatments and cures for blinding diseases. We have what are called uh, communities of hope across the country. These are groups of people who have sort of come together in, in common cause you know, to support the mission uh, to raise funds. And, you know, anything from a bake sale at an elementary school all the way up to a black tie, you know, gala dinner uh, for 800 guests. Uh, we've had uh, communities of hope put on, uh, you know, performances where entertainers come and, and whatnot. It's been it's been phenomenal. And it, at a central level, the um, sort of national organization really exists to help those communities to sort of bring them together, coordinate their efforts, and try to help them uh, have a positive experience raising, uh, you know, critically needed research funds. And then on the science side, you know, we we uh, the organization uh, obviously you know deploys those research funds in what I'd like to think are very smart ways to try to advance the uh, progress of treatments from the research labs to the clinics. And there has been breathtaking progress uh, of late. We've seen success in human clinical trials, restoring vision using gene therapy, which is amazing. We've seen pharmaceutical products developed that restore vision in some conditions. Um, we just saw news of some successful retinal transplantations in large animal models. Um, I mean, we, we literally will see cures for blindness uh, in, in the near future, which I think is, is pretty stunning. And selfishly, I'm pretty excited about. <laughs> so uh, Hope for Vision is, you know, like I said, it's a great organization. I encourage folks who are interested in getting involved to do so. Our website is www.hopeforvision, all one word, .org. And, uh, you know, that's a good place to start. And you've, you've testified before Congress uh, on the need for, for federal funding. Uh, and you've, you've also served as a mentor to individuals and families coping with, with blinding diseases. What, what, what is the need for funding here and, and what's been the feedback that you've received? So, you know, there's, there's, there's need and there's opportunity. I'll give you a um, example. So, we, we as a nation spend uh, $60 billion, that's uh, a B as in boy, uh, dollars annually uh, on uh, services related to blindness, right? Uh, help, helping those with, with uh, visual disease. Yet the total budget of the National Eye Institute uh, is, is more on the order of $600 million. I think it's a bit over $600 million. Uh, so that's, that's a 1% on, uh, on cure versus, uh, you know, 100% on on, uh, on, you know, on the costs, on the burdens. And this is at a time when, you know, as I said, we have proof of science on several avenues of treatment. So, you know, the hard work has been done in, in, in a lot of cases, and we know uh, 
how to develop these treatments, but there's a lot of work to get there. Human clinical trials are astronomically expensive uh, and take take a lot of time. So I, you know, I I think there's a very compelling uh, you know, objective case for uh, deploying a lot more research funding to this problem. Uh, I also think, again, I'm biased, but I also think it's just a good thing to do. <laughs> uh, so that those are the kinds of things we like to try to talk about on the Hill, I guess. So Isaac, here's your here's your chance. You um, have an opportunity to talk to people that are potentially uh, blind or thinking about going into law that have sure. a visual impairment or know someone who is. What would you say to them about uh, trying to practice in an area that is so intensely visual? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I'm convinced because I live it every day that, you know, blindness really is not... Uh, you know, does not foreclose having a rewarding uh, legal career. Uh, like I said, there are practical solutions to you know pretty much any problem. I think you know probably juggling fire is is a bad idea for a blind person, but I'm sure it's possible. Uh, but law is certainly, thankfully, a lot easier <laughs> for a blind person. Uh, so you know, I encourage anyone who is interested in law, blind or disabled in any way, or not disabled. Uh, to pursue the law, I found it incredibly rewarding, and I've really enjoyed it. You you were the first blind Supreme Court clerk. Have there have there been others since you? No, to my knowledge, no. There's only been a couple terms, so you know we'll give them some time. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think I think I still hold that uh, that record. Although I should say I, I wasn't out to set any records, and I would much prefer it to be the case that, uh, you know, I would much rather we live in a society where people hear that I am blind and clerk for the Supreme Court and not think twice about it, find it to be totally, you know, normal and you know, not unusual in any way. Yeah. So, Isaac, who, who has motivated you to get to where you are today? Who's your hero? Well, my parents have, have, have provided a phenomenal source of motivation for me. They've really they taught my sisters and me from, you know, a very young age, well before, you know, this, this challenge came into our lives that, you know, uh, you sort of take charge and, uh, you know, meet, meet the challenges that you're faced with, with, uh, you know, positive attitude, uh, recognize your blessings. I, I know that for me, sort of going blind in a weird way has, has led me to really own up to how lucky I am, how blessed I am, how, how many uh, you know, great, how many things I have to be thankful for in my life. Um, so that and that really is the sort of the philosophy that my parents instilled in us. And then, of course, when we were diagnosed uh, with with these uh, with, with this retinal condition, my folks really took charge and and you know decided that trying to raise awareness and raise funds and, and, and do something positive about it was 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 the right answer. And it was easy for me to follow in their in their footsteps. And have 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 your sisters? Uh, what what's the condition of their eyesight at this point? So thankfully, uh, the the two of my three sisters who have the condition see better than I do. Uh, one substantially worse than the other, but they both see sort of you know substantially better than I do. But you know they they continue to lose vision every day, like you know millions of Americans and countless more millions worldwide. Uh, so you know there is a great sense of urgency to advance the progress of science. Well, Isaac, we've reached the point in our program where it's time to wrap up and get uh, your final thoughts as well as your contact information should any of our listeners want to reach out to you. So here's your opportunity to um, kind of give that wrap up for us, please. Well, I mean, I guess the, the, the thought that's always on my mind right now is what a 
sort of profound sense of uh, gratitude and, and uh, sort of a sense of blessing that I have that, that uh, my children, Lily and Phineas, are home and healthy uh, and that Thaddeus will join them soon. And um, I guess my wife, Dorothy, and I feel uh, profound appreciation for all the folks at Cornell Hospital and the neonatal intensive care unit there, the NICU. They have taken phenomenal care of my children. And, and I mean, the reason why we have three children to speak of, let alone three healthy, wonderful children, is, is because of the care that they received in the NICU. So that's pretty much an infinite loop in my in my brain these days is, is that thought. But in terms of contact information, more a more mundane subject, um, I guess anyone who would like to get in touch with me is, is free to email me uh, at my office. That email address is just uh, I Litsky, I L as in Larry, I D as in David, S as in Sam, K Y, at AkinGump.com, or uh, they can call the office. It's 212-872-1000. And your organization so, is HopefulVision.org. Exactly. exactly right. Yes. And, and, uh, and you know, and I hear you say that uh, you you like to think that there's going to be a day when 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 people won't look at your, uh, you know, having been a blind clerk at the Supreme Court and think think that much about it. But it is uh, it is an extraordinary story. And you, you've accomplished uh, uh, so much in your career, uh, you know, uh, by any standard uh, and, to, and to have done it, uh, uh, you know, uh, having to deal with, with this uh, extra obstacle among all the other obstacles we all face in life uh, certainly uh, speaks a lot to your character and, and uh, says a lot about you. So, uh, you really should be uh, should be commended for all that you've accomplished. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I feel blessed to have had the experiences that I've had and to have met the people that I've met. Well, thanks a lot. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. My, my pleasure. My, my honor. I appreciate it. I hope I haven't put anyone to sleep with all my rambling. Now you've done a fine job. Well, thanks very much. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, for our listeners, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And, of course, a reminder that you can get uh, CLE credit for listening to our program by going to Legal Talk Network and clicking on the link to the West Legal Ed Center. We'd like to, again, give a very special thanks to Isaac Litsky for being with us today. And all of our Legal Talk Network shows can be found on iTunes as well. We'll see you again next week when we'll be discussing another great legal topic. We'll talk to you then. Thanks. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.